As Pastor Bob mentioned, we, one thing that we've been talking about really this past year, do you remember this language of 14ers? You remember that? We're, we're a state that has these 14ers that a lot of people have as their goal to climb. I've never climbed once, someday maybe. And we as a community have 14ers, and one of those is the idea of what does it mean to be in deeply committed, connected relationships that are life-giving. And so we've kind of just been coming at that from a lot of different sides, talking about it and saying, in a world where there's so much virtual community, what does it mean to have real, real community? <clears throat> there's this uh, historian named Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham has studied a lot about the progression and growth of early Jesus movements. And he, he, he points out that of the 7.4 billion people on this earth, about a third of them would be people who would, who would identify as Christian. That is to say, they would say, Jesus is, is the primary factor of what I mean when I talk about my relationship with God. It means Jesus is the primary factor of, of what I mean when I talk about how I live and engage my life in the world. And he points out that this number of this Jesus followers is growing by about 70,000 persons per day who are signing up to say, I'm following this Jesus, I'm throwing my, my life in. What's so fascinating is how is it that this tiny, fragile, little fledgling band of Jesus followers who were so fickle and sometimes in, sometimes out, and marginalized group, turned into this? Um, 2,000 years later, different vantage point, we, we have different perspective. We can look at so many different factors and see things that made it grow, but... I want to look at the words of these early followers of Jesus and say, what did they think they were doing that God used to do this amazing thing? And so turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a passage that if you were here about a week ago, Pastor Derry talked about this. And I want us to return and, and kind of look at a couple pieces. We're going to go a slightly different direction. But... Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is how they understood what they were doing. This is sort of a summary statement. The historian Luke records in the book of Acts the early progressions of this fledgling Jesus movement, and he writes this. They, these early apprentices of Jesus, and here's a key word if you want to underline a word in your Bible. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, four things. And then he goes on to say, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions to give to anyone in need. And every day they were together. They continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread together in their homes. They ate together with glad, sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the key word. And if you have a bolt and if you want to follow along and fill in some blanks, the first line to fill in there is this, this key word that we underlined. The Jesus movement went far because his apprentices devoted themselves to connectedness in community. There's a uh, psychologist who, who talks about different kinds of relationships. His name is John White. And he says, if you think about relationships that you have, it could be one-on-one -on -one relationships or it could be group communal relationships. He says they, they fall into two different categories. 
he says there's, there's what's called attraction-based relationships. Attraction-based relationships are, are, are ones that, that are based on some quality that you have in order to be in the group or the one-on-one, which is attractive enough that makes you accepted, right? We understand that sort of thing. And in these kinds of relationships, he says, what's, what's intended to be community, kind of a safe haven, it's not really that way because there's a lot of stress and pressure involved because you have to kind of keep working on those qualities. You have to keep being attractive enough because if you're not, you'll be shunned, you'll be alienated or rejected in some way. <clears throat> and so, and you know, we can think about a lot of examples, right? Think about um, a nice hotel you go into. A nice hotel is admittedly saying we're in an attraction-based relationship, right? Because if their food's not good enough, their sheets aren't clean enough, the parking's not good enough, what are we going to do as customers? Yeah, we're gone. No way. Think about stores. Every store is this way. Have you guys been over to the new Foothills Mall? Isn't that a cool area? I just, I love what they've done to that area. Okay, there's one parking lot. You guys might know which one I'm talking about. Foothills Mall. Two, two stores on different ends, east side and west side, share this one parking lot. Okay, both stores are clothing stores. The store on the west side is kind of high end. Okay, it's, it's, it's kind of all about, you know, you walk in and it's, you know, the, the atmosphere. Would you like to try something on? Go on in. Would you like another size? What can I help you with? Go to the east side of the parking lot. Different store, same selling things. You go to try something on there, and you've got to hang things up to make sure you're not stealing it. They frisk you down, and then they staple a blue plastic number on your forehead that coincides with the number of clothes you have, and then when you come back out, they frisk you again. And... No, I love that place because I love deals. They could slap me, and I'm still going to come back. <laughs> Both of these places, though, it's an attraction-based relationship, right? One of them, what quality is it? It's good prices. And so I'll keep, what's the other quality? Maybe it's status, maybe it's the experience. But both of these places are engaged in this sort of attraction-based relationship. Now, here's, here's the point. If I make myself attractive to you just so you'll like me or so that you will keep buying my business or that sort of thing, what kind of, what kind of um, community, what sort of kindness am I shown? I would suggest there are two kinds. Either it's sort of a commercial kindness. It's an exchange. I'll do this if you do that. Or it's a neurotic kindness. It's, it's a kindness which is surrounded by like nervousness, and pressure and stress, right? Because what if, what if I'm not good enough? What if, I don't, what if I don't keep staying attractive in this way? And so here's the question is, is, is this really the sort of kindness that we, that we need to grow far to mature in life? And this gets to, to our second um, sort of relationship that, that John White talks about, and he calls it he calls it a commitment based relationship a commitment based relationship it's based on a prior commitment that you and others make and in this sort of relationship your acceptance your belonging it's stable it's not it's not up for grabs and what comes along with this in this sort of commitment based relationship is there's there's a mutual belo- actual belonging like i belong to you you belong to me 
And, and we actually have responsibilities to each other. I have responsibilities to you, and I have to discharge those responsibilities in love even. Now, what's so fascinating is when Jesus comes on the scene, when he talks about this new humanity, the language that Paul uses, that Jesus, Jesus actually wants to create a new humanity, a new way of being human, a new life, he radically redefines what it means to, to belong. Now, Jesus is a first century Palestinian Jew, and he's in what's called a kinship culture. This is a culture where kinship determines your status. Everything you do is a reflection on your kinship, your family. So it's this honor, shame, everything you do reflects on them, what they do reflects upon you. Family is key. And it's in this context that Jesus says, let me tell you about what it means to belong. And he redefines it, completely redefines it. Matthew 12, 46. Let me, let me read some of these words for you. Here's the context of Matthew 12, 46. Jesus' ministry is growing. He's making pretty significant, phenomenal claims. Like, for instance, I can redefine how you can belong. And Jesus' mother, Mary, and his, and his brothers actually come to get him. They think he's gone mad. They think he's insane. And they've come to get him and forcibly remove him and take him home. And that's the context, and we read this in verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking or talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. When someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you, listen to what, think about how shocking this would have been in a kinship culture. He replied to them, who is my mother and my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, his apprentices, his students, he said, uh, these are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So what, what, what we realize is that if you're a part of this Jesus community, do you realize that you don't have the right to pick your siblings? <laughs> I can't pick who my brother is. I can't pick who my sister is. They belong to us, and we belong to them. And here's the thing. As long as you live... If you're a Jesus follower, as long as you live, you're actually in their debt. You ever thought about that? If you signed up for this thing that Jesus is doing, you're actually in their debt. Doesn't matter if this person has done a lot for you or nothing for you. What Jesus says is, your indebtedness to me, I want you to transfer it to them. That's what he meant when he said this. Many of you have, I'm sure, heard this. Jesus says, whatever you have done for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, what you've done for me. Listen to how the Apostle Paul described and talked about this new humanity, this new community who had this unity that defied all categories. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says there's one body. He's meaning like the body of Christ. One, one community. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because see, here's the point that he realized. When, when community is based on attraction, it's going to last about as long as attraction lasts. And so, what do we get, though, when we have this commitment 
faith-based relationship? Like, like what, what kind of belonging will you experience if you step into this commitment-based relationship that Jesus talks about? It's interesting. We don't, we don't really have a good word for it in our, in our language. Let me give you some ancient words that I think kind of get at it better. There's an ancient Hebrew word that the Old Testament writers would use all the time. It's the word hesed. I'll just say hesed because I don't want to spit on anyone here. But hesed was this word that if you ever read your Old Testament and you come across phrases like um, steadfast love, you ever read that phrase, you know, God will say something like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's this word hesed, the hesed love of God. Um, it's, it's this idea of, of this um, ongoing sort of um, covenant love, steadfast love, loving kindness, different ways. The New Testament kind of grabs a different word. It's Greek, not Hebrew. It uses the word agape or agape. It's a sort of divine love. It's this idea of this commitment. It's like being tied together, absolutely committed. When I, when I do... Um, kind of premarital stuff with couples, and, or I do a wedding, and I always talk about, you know, you're stepping into a covenant. And I say, it's pretty much, it's, it's like a cage match. It, like, only one of you is getting out alive, okay? Like, this is forever. You're tied to them. This is like cage match love. It doesn't matter what happens. You're not getting out. That's the kind of community. That's the, that's the sort of kindness that's offered. Cage match, that sounds good, doesn't it? That's the sort of kindness that's offered when, when Jesus talks about his community, this, this commitment that's not based on certain qualities that you might have that are attractive enough. That's what the Jesus community devoted themselves to. Remember back what we read earlier? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, th- think with me just for a second about community about relationships, about being deeply connected, do you realize that there are actually physical consequences, literally, to being engaged in community as opposed to disengaged? There's an academic journal called the Journal of Happiness Studies. It's published using the tools of research to, to identify what is it that makes human life really flourish? When, when researchers look at what distinguishes quite happy people um, from those who, who are less happy, there is one factor that consistently separates these two groups. Um, and, and, and it's not money. It's not health. It's not security. It's not your attractiveness. It's not your IQ. It's not your career success. The, the one Uh, What what constantly distinguishes happier people from less happier people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships every single time. Uh, One social study, this this is amazing to me, one social study looked at hundreds of people who volunteered to be infected by the virus that just creates, you know, the common cold. I mean, I don't can't imagine why people would do that, but hundreds of people signed up for it. And when the, research, when the researchers looked at what, um, what kind of what, what happened, um, they found this. It turns out that relationally isolated people, okay, relationally isolated people 
are four times more likely to get sick than people in community. And what they find is just physiologically, they're, they're more susceptible. The study went on to say they have higher levels of the virus and they produce significantly more mucus. That's disgusting. Significantly more mucus than other people. That's actually why we've, we've changed the slogan of our small groups at Timberline to join a small group and clear your sinuses. <laughs> There's a guy by the name of um, Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam, decades ago, he, he kind of wrote the uh, quintessential study on community in the modern period and that sort of thing. The title of his book, it's fantastic, Bowling Alone. Sounds sad, just the title, doesn't it? Bowling Alone. And Putnam writes this, the single most common finding from a half century's research on life satisfaction, not just here in the U.S., he says, but this is worldwide, um, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and the depth of one's social interactions. And this doesn't mean being an extrovert. I know introverts who, sound, who have some of the most deeply connected relationships there are. But see, people who are socially disconnected, we see here in some of these other studies, people who are disconnected are between two to five times more likely to die from any cause than those who have close ties to family, friends, other relationships. Even, this is interesting, even people who have bad health habits, like cigarette smoking, overeating, elevated blood pressure, uh, being sedentary, or physical inact um, inactivity, but who still remain deeply connected live longer than people with great health habits, but who are isolated and disconnected. One of the kind of quintessential examples of this, I think, is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, um, he had a wonderful marriage with his wife, loved his wife, deeply connected relationships with his family, with friends around him, uh, enjoyed his, his job, his, um, his nation, but his health habits were horrible. I mean, the, the guy's diet was awful, um, he smoked cigars all the time. He drank too much. Uh, he had weird sleeping habits, really, really odd sleeping habits. He was mostly sedentary. And yet the dude lived to like almost 90. Um, someone once, once asked Mr. Mr. Churchill, they said, Mr. Churchill, do you, do you ever exercise? And his reply was great. He go, I'll, I'll do my best, Jeff Lucas here. He replied and said, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. <laughs> only Churchill. Connectedness is literally life-giving. Two things I would suggest that, that you will never receive outside of deeply connected, commitment-based relationships and groups. This is in your outline there. Two sides of devoted connectedness in community. The first one, absolutely life-giving, is encouragement. Encouragement. Um, you guys, you, you remember the name Barnabas? If you've been around church for a while, this is a guy who anytime you go through the book of Acts, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, Barnabas, because he's this kind of key guy in the story of this fledgling church kind of growing and Paul planting churches and all this stuff. So he's in the book, but Look at how the first time Barnabas is ever introduced in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought it to the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. 
He's, this isn't even his name, <laughs> right? Joseph was one of his key companions of Paul. He was instrumental in, in the early church being started and forming. And he was so about something, something about who he was and how he behaved and what he did, that he actually got a nickname, Son of Encouragement. He got this new name because that, that's just what, what characterized how he lived his life. How are you guys doing on that? Like, if you were to rate yourself, how much of an encourager are you in the relationships that you have? Are you able to authentically celebrate with other people things going on in their lives? Are you able to really encourage them? There's a, um, uh, one of the leading researchers around marriage. His name is John Gottman. You can look him up. He's done a ton of stuff. He's one of the leading researchers around stability in marriage and that sort of thing. And Gottman has pointed out that the presence of encouragement in a marriage, he says, it's the primary predictor on whether or not it'll last or they'll get divorced. In fact, he even says, for a marriage to last, and, and he's done studies, and all the studies are really, really right on, there's actually a specific ratio of positive encouragement to negative. And he said it's five to one. Five positive encouraging actions, words, behaviors, whatever, to one negative. And he said very happy couples have like a 20 to one ratio. Any of you guys feel a little convicted by that? I do. Because I'm like, oh man, I'm not sure if my ratio is that, <laughs> that good. But see, just as the presence of positive encouragement is necessary for a healthy relationship, this also isn't rocket science, is it? How do you encourage people? Giving them a smile, right? Calling them on their birthday, noticing what kind of coffee drink they like and you kind of surprise them and buy, what, you know, buy it for them and bring it to them, sending them a note, paying someone a compliment, noticing something new that, they're, that they've bought, new haircut they have, Something new that they're doing. Ask, hey, you mentioned something about this the other week. What happened with it? There are so many tiny ways that we can be encouraging in the communities that we're in. And see, this isn't just research, you guys. This is deeply embedded in the Bible. This, this is scriptural. Listen to uh, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.13. He writes this, But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, and then why does he say this? This is kind of fascinating. Probably we could unpack this a lot more. We don't have time to. Encourage one another daily. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Something actually happens inside the human heart when you live in a context where regular encouragement is not happening. Encouragement is absolutely vital, you guys, for going far in life. This uh, couple past couple weeks, I've been talking to some of our small group leaders. These, these are kind of leaders who, who weekly gather with, with their, their small group, their community. And I just said, hey, any stories? Like, share. Are there ways that community is really working, like going well? Is, like, do we have this really happening? And it was so cool because there was just all these stories. I wish I could share like 10 of them with you if you'd stay for an extra hour. But let me share one real quick one. There was, there was one woman named Margie, and she gave me permission to talk about this because these were some of her own words. Margie and her husband, about three years ago, Jesus was not a part of their lives, uh, but joined a small group and were kind of, not kind of, very apprehensive. Uh, some of their language was like, ah, what if they're super judgmental and you know, try to convert me, you know, and that sort of thing. So she was kind of freaked out, and, and she said, exact opposite experience. It's been really, really cool. Well, this last year, um, man, their, their life just went to pot. Um, her, her husband was in a really horrible accident in, in August, 
and um, he wasn't able to work, and it was just traumatic on their family. They hit the floor, just hit the floor in their life. And, and so in the midst of this community and this small group, she said, I just, I, one week I was like, would you guys please pray? And then she kind of told the story. I don't know if they knew all the details. And, and these, are, these are some of her words. Um, she said, they, they prayed, and they fed us, and they walked our dog, and they cleaned our house, and they mowed our lawn, and they brought us groceries, and they provided respite care for me so I could take a break from caregiving. They provided financial support. They sent us gift cards. They visited us. They showered us with messages. They were the community. They were, they were just this. And she said, I've never seen, these are some of her words, she said, I've never seen a better example of community. And what I realized is the reason they're doing it is because they believe in this Jesus and his call on their lives. And she said, that's my small group. I love them. She said, doggone it, they converted me. <laughs> you never know when you're going to hit the floor, do you? I never know when something's going to happen that I am going to hit the floor. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with people over coffee or been praying or our prayer team who's up front here at the end of every service that we've, we've been talking with, with someone and they say, here's what's going on and they've hit the floor and it's bad. And one of the first questions, you know, I always ask is like, what sort of, what sort of this do you have? Like, what sort of support system? And the vast majority of the time they go, I don't. I don't have any. How long have you been a part of this church? Five years, seven years, three years. And, and they come, and they, they're here, and then they go. But there's no devotion to community. They have not devoted themselves to developing relationships around them. The first thing you need is encouragement. First thing I need is encouragement. The second thing that we need from community, and you'll never get and you need it, is calling you back when you start to go off the tracks. Calling you back. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, we said, what was the church all about? What was this early fledging movement all about? Remember it said they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship and eating together, that sort of thing. Um, after a little while, remember the guy Peter? Peter stopped. Peter stopped doing the connecting fellowship with a certain group because he kind of fell into the attraction model. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, you know, they ate different food and all this. He stopped eating with them, and he was kind of dividing the community. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, actually, when he sees Peter, there's this uh, account in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Let me, let me read this for you. I think it's on the screens. <clears throat> we read that um, when Cephas, that's just another name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul opposed him to his face for what he was doing. He was moving from a commitment kind of community to an attraction community because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back, separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even, remember this guy? Even the super encourager, remember this dude, he's fantastic. Even he went off the rails. He was led astray. And so Paul confronts him. Um, let, me, let me read for you. I love Ralph Keeper did a very loose, you'll see that it's loose, paraphrase of this next passage. Let me read it to you. 
It says this, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. You forgot your breath mints. There was a time when you wouldn't eat ham as part of your hope of salvation. Then after you trusted Christ, it didn't matter if you ate ham. But now when the no ham eaters have come to Jerusalem, you've gone back to your kosher ways. But the smell of ham still lingers on your breath. (laughs) You are most inconsistent. You're compelling Gentile believers to observe Jewish law, which can never justify anyone. Even Peter and Barnabas, for crying out loud, if they didn't have community to pull them back, you've gone off the rails, buddy. Right? And it's not in a, it's not in a horrible, angry, I hate you, you're a bad person way, but it's, dude, you're blowing it. You're going to hurt yourself and you're hurting community in this way. And so they've called him back. This is why later the author of the book of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> some people, this is from you know, day one, people in the habit are just, they're in the habit of kind of isolating for whatever, probably maybe some justifiable reasons that it feels like, but there's this tendency when we have committed ourselves to this to easily jump to this and then kind of trail back and trail away. But see, being devoted to this kind of commitment-based community, and this is really important, you guys, it, it will be a safeguard in your life. It will protect you. If you absolutely are in a committed, commitment-based community, it will be a protection to your life. I would suggest that there's a correlation. This is what I've seen in people's lives. I've seen it in my life. There's a correlation between making unusually bad decisions when you wouldn't normally do it and pulling back from devoted community. Uh, I can't tell you how many times this conversa- I've heard this, con- this conversation a dozen times more. When someone's marriage is on the rocks, it's going off the rails, and someone's, oh man, did you hear that so-and-so, you know, you know, you know they're really struggling. Um, and almost one of the next things I hear someone say is, man, I haven't seen them around church for a while. I haven't seen them engaged. I haven't seen them, what? they've isolated, they've pulled back. You guys, that's exactly when the person needs to show up. Now, you may say, I don't feel like going to church. I don't want to go to the small group. I don't want to show up at the men's breakfast. I don't want to go to the singles group. I don't want to go to the women's study Wednesday. But I know I need to be around community right now. I've, even though my emotions aren't there, I know that's what I need. Do you have that? Are you devoted to a commitment-based community, a smaller group? I don't mean just like, oh, yeah, my name's on the records. <laughs> There's, a, there's an insert in your bulletin, and the insert is called a, a connectedness inventory. This connectedness inventory, I would, I would encourage you to take this home. Six questions on there. And I would suggest that if you can't answer these six questions, at least most of them, with a yes, um, you might want to think about joining a small group. You might want to think about asking that person out for coffee and starting to say, I'm going to put myself out there in an environment where God might be able to providentially bring some life-giving relationships into my life that will encourage me, that will be 
protective to me in that way. Now, some of you might be saying, yeah, but church is boring. Small group is boring. Yeah, sometimes it is. Brushing your teeth, sometimes it's really boring. But what happens when you don't do it and how important is it? Sometimes hanging out with your family, sometimes it's boring. But what happens when you don't do it and how important is it? Or you might say to yourself, well, I, just, I, don't, I don't need it. I, don't, I, I, I know some people do. I get it. I get it. I just don't have those needs. If your life is really that put together that you don't need it, someone needs you. So get involved. Devote yourself to a commitment-based kind of community. There's a, a, someone who I met. He's a church leader in another state, and he's a part of a faith community. And they have this phrase that they, it's like an anthem for them. They talk about it all the time. They all know it. They can say it together. And I love it because it captures this to me. And the phrase is this, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. See, if you want to go fast in life, if you want to have, never have anyone that bothers you, no one ever crosses your will, no one that never having to go to a group that, oh, it's a little boring and this person sings a little too loud. If, if you want to go fast, go alone, baby. If you want to go far, okay? If you want to actually have to deal with people in your life who are annoying, and if you don't have anyone like that, call us, we'll assign you one, okay? Because they're all over. If you want to go far in life, Go together. I had this experience a couple weeks ago. My mom called me and told me that, she said, hey, we're getting back together with our old Bible study. And I said, which one was this? And she told me, I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So like back in the like late 70s, early 80s, I was a little kid, like six, six, seven, eight, that sort of thing. They had this Bible study in their home. And it was, it was a couple's Bible study. And this is like 70s, that big old afros and giant mustaches, just on the guys, but... Um, you know, big glasses, and this one guy would always show up with his guitar, and they would sing, and you know, it's kind of Jesus movement, kind of Jesus freak sort of stuff, and, and so these couples would show up, and, and uh, the, you know, all the kids, we'd have to be upstairs, and so they would have a Bible study, and then they would sing their songs, and they'd call the kids down, and we would eat, and then go back upstairs, and they'd play games, and I was upstairs watching Smoking the Bandit or something, I don't know, and um, she said, uh, we haven't seen a lot of these people in like 35 years, you know, this is like 40 years ago they used to meet. And uh, some of the couples are still around here they still have relationships with, but some moved out of the country. Some of them are back. So she goes, we're getting together for dinner. And I said, oh, send me pictures. And so they got together. She sent me a picture. And I'm like, man, they look old. Um, but better hair, at least. And so they got together. And what was so cool is my mom said, what came out in our conversation was like three separate couples said, if it weren't for that group, we would not be married today. Another couple said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our marriage was really hanging by a thread. We, we would have been divorced. Our family would have been in shambles. Th- these are families who have kids and who have grandkids. I know some of their grandkids. I know some of their kids. And what blows me away is I'm thinking, man, it, I guarantee you there were times that it was probably not a great Bible study. It was kind of boring and probably at times that that lady was singing too loud and they probably found one of those long afro hairs in one of the casserole dishes and, you know, they were too tired to go. and pro- Probably some bad meetings, right? And I had no idea. I'm upstairs watching Smokey and the Bandit and life-changing communities happening and really boring, normal things going on. But what they realized is they look back 40 years and they said, generations in our family, there's an eternal difference. Why? 
because they, they devoted themselves to a commitment-based community where encouragement regularly happened, when they were called back when they blew it. And what they realized together is that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I pray for those who, who would be a part of this community and maybe by all appearances, even kind of to themselves on the outside, man, they're, they're here, they're plugged in, they're attending. But if they were really deeply honest, they might also say, I don't know to what degree I am devoted to connectedness in this sort of commitment-based relationship. This, this community thing that Jesus is talking about, I don't know if I'm fully devoted to that. Lord, I, I, I pray for the person also who, who would say, you know, because of a lot of decisions I've made, maybe some decisions other people have made, I find myself at a pretty isolated place. I, I am not deeply connected in life-giving, sustaining relationships. Father, would you cause us as a community, wherever, we're at a lot of different places, but would you give us a vision for what we could be as the people of God? And would you put in our hearts faith and courage to take just one step, maybe it's one phone call, maybe it's catching that one person in the hall, maybe it's jumping online and signing up for one thing. It's showing up. And would you allow our hearts to be so sensitive, so open, so transparent that we would be able to establish new relationships that you would providentially order. And finally, God, I pray for us as a community, we all agree together, would you give us, Timberline Church, a vision for how we can be life-giving community in our broader community so that when people look at us, they would see and say as they did of the early Christians, look how they love each other. And they would be compelled to the heart of Jesus and to the foot of the cross. That's what we long for, God. We are so grateful that you have called us into this great commission, into this great community that you've given us brothers and sisters. God, may we not go fast and alone, but may we go far as we go together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.